This special two-part episode of the AFIRE podcast is sponsored by Accountability, a consulting firm that helps companies embed ESG into their corporate DNA. Okay, let's... <clears throat> oh, oh boy. You know, it's amazing to me that at some point the bill comes due. You are listening to the A-Fire podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So now we need to talk about climate change and climate risk at a level that we've never really talked about it before when it comes to real estate. We had this great conversation with Bob Geiger, who's executive director at Partner Engineering and Science. And he had a really interesting perspective on a recent transaction that he came across in Naples, Florida. What, what was that about, Ben? The basic anecdote coming from Bob Geiger discusses a developer looking to get a portfolio of about two dozen buildings in Naples, Florida. Predominantly kind of a retirement community, pretty well-to-do, pretty stable. This particular developer has experienced loss in, in some of their Florida assets. And so they've experienced situations where they're not able to renew or their premiums and their insurance that are exorbitant. And just to put some context around it, I mean, generally speaking, the insurance part is kind of the least of your concerns when you're trying to do a transaction. But it sounds like this changed a bit. I mean, what was it that the insurance company was pressing them on during this process? Basically, architect-level technical information about these assets. They want details about the cladding, the types of materials used on the roofing. They want wind-related data. So it's not just the basic underwriting information you'd get on CoStar in terms of how old the building is, what level of construction, who the tenants are, how stable the tenants are, which is what we've had in the past. Exactly. The insurers being extra cautious. And can you blame them? I mean, given the losses that have taken place, even as they're uh, rapidly increasing premiums, how do you make up for that? How do you make up for the level of storm damage that we've been seeing just in the last couple of years? But before we get into the weeds here, I think it's really helpful to provide any listener or viewer of this podcast with some context. Our focus today on climate change and the, the, the cost of the risk around climate change and the, and the need for resilience is, is really designed to help give some strategic advice and to bring some ideas from some experts that we have been fortunate enough to include in the most recent AFIRE Summit. Bob Geiger, of course, but also people like Jacques Gordon, the executive in residence at the MIT Center for Real Estate, Parag Khanna, the renowned author, as well as the founder and CEO of Climate Alpha. Before we go into those conversations, let's, let's first recognize that we passed an important waypoint this summer. Actually, we're still passing it. It's extreme after extreme. Heat is also plaguing parts of Canada and searing in the Southwest US. The climate change appear to be ramping up with Antarctic sea ice melting faster than ever before. Heat waves that have hit large areas of Europe, the United States and parts of Asia. It's happening and it's even ahead of many of those forecasts. I mean, it seems that they're recasting. Yeah, exactly. So I have, like Phoenix comes to mind when we're talking about this. It's a prized Sunbelt destination, pretty solid for large scale, institutional scale investment, especially for residential and single family rentals. But July 23, the city of Phoenix had a temperature of 110 degrees or hotter every single day from June 30 to July 30. That's inhospitable period to human life. And I think from 
a real estate perspective, we have things like negative cash flows and high vacancies, problematic tenants, and other known real estate issues, especially bad locations. And I think this is how we typically define high risk. However, what we have to figure out is what is the level of risk and how is that level of risk in one area less or more than another? Insurance gets to partially dictate how we define risk in, in commercial real estate. And as any homeowner knows, the largest risks are things out of our control, like fires and floods and natural disasters. Part of what I find interesting is when we asked at the beginning of this year, all of the AFIRE members, uh, if we were appropriately pricing for climate risk in our current pro formas, uh, for our current portfolios, for new acquisitions going forward, 85% of our members said no. In other words, we are not currently pricing for risk. What's changed this year from the beginning of the year is that insurance companies are doing it for us. They are pricing risk. And as we have always relied on insurance in the past, now we will continue to rely on insurance, obviously, but insurance is going to start becoming a significant factor in the economics of any given deal. And we are going to have to adjust to what is now becoming a recalculation of climate risk. We expect that well, there will be more incidences of insurance companies saying no. So as we think about this, it seems to me that Naples and other uh, what we have been calling high risk areas are just the beginning of a very long story where real estate on a global basis is having to adjust and consider resilience, not just in Florida, not just in Manhattan, not just in Boston, not just in California, not just in Arizona, but around the world. One of our contributors noted that natural disasters and climate events, we've seen about 100 billion in insurable losses annually for the past five years. So I'm not saying insurance companies are suffering, but they're looking at the writing on the wall and making decisions accordingly. There's a tendency for us to write a story around insurance companies as being good or evil. Um, and it's neither. It's simply they're trying to put a price to risk. That's what they've always done. It's a way of pooling uh, resources in order to handle risk over time. And that's what's happening. So I think to a certain extent, right now, we can look at insurance companies not as someone who's getting uh, an entity that's getting in the way or making it more difficult for us to do our jobs, but we can look at insurance companies as important providers of data. They are letting us know how much this risk actually costs, which helps us to determine what the pricing should be. From our perspective, like you said, hearing the pain points of institutional investors, climate change has already been having and is continuing to have an even greater impact on decisions around commercial real estate globally. It's, it's not the end of the world, but it is certainly something that we need to calibrate financially, as well as other decisions that we make that impact our economic and well-being and our health and happiness as we go forward. And yet, despite the rising costs, the rising dangers that we're seeing in the Sun Belt region in particular, the U.S. migration patterns are not reflecting that. We're seeing growth of migration into these Sun Belt regions. The only way we can talk about it is perhaps to question, is it rational? Overwhelmingly, population growth and GDP growth is happening in cities in the U.S. that have, on average, fairly high levels of environmental risks. So that's what the data tells us, and, and that includes mortality risk for environmentally related change. People are making crazy decisions, and investors need to react to that. 
what we just heard was the voice of Hans Nordby. He's one of the people on the editorial board of Summit Journal. He's also the head of analytics and research at Lionstone Investments. And what he was discussing, Jock Gordon also discusses in more detail. There's nothing invalid about uh, retiring and moving to Florida. I didn't do that, but many people my age do that. They're going for rational reasons. There's no income tax in the state of Florida. There's a lot of great places to live within view of the ocean. The weird thing is the view of a coastal ocean is still uh, attractive uh, and priced into real estate. And you see it in rents and housing prices. At the same time, that's true. There's a threat. There's a threat to being so close to the ocean. And it's a longer term threat. And it's a more uncertain threat. You kind of have to wonder. Um what is the rational reason for someone to make a long-term investment, a 10, 20, 30-year investment in an asset that is in one of these higher risk areas? Because those 100-year storms are coming more fast and furious. Now, importantly, people and firms haven't yet borne much of the brunt of environmental risk yet. So they aren't baking it into their thinking. Now, here's an example. From 1988 to 2019, according to a study that broadened the definition of hurricane and tropical storm-related deaths in the U.S. A total of 18,000 people died in the U.S. during that time period. And that is a tragedy, and that's a number that could increase as environmental risks and hurricanes and storm-related damages increase with environmental change. 18,000 people. During that same time period, 1.27 million people died in the U.S., from car accidents. So individuals are weighing many risks when deciding they want to move to cities. And many knowledgeable people attribute high environmental risks to certain cities. Those would include Tampa, Jacksonville, Austin. That means investors have a choice. They can focus their investments on cities that have the lowest perceived risks from environmental causes, such as Cleveland, Chicago or Seattle, or investors can manage their risks. And there are a lot of tools to do so, Gunnar. It's always difficult for us to, to make generalizations across regions, mm. much less across an entire city. It's difficult to make generalizations. And I think that the, the magic to real estate is understanding where the value, undiscovered value is within an area that perhaps is written off. But at the same time, I look at Sunbelt cities like Atlanta that seem to be pretty well situated, both from a migration pattern standpoint. Yes, Atlanta has the nickname of Hotlanta for a reason, but for the foreseeable future, for the next 10, 20 years, um, there, there's a lot of arguments to be made for continued growth in great part because that city is making investments as a city. We look at the horizon, we maybe see some foreboding signals about climate change, but short term or for all the landscape leading up to the horizon, we have affordability, we have sensible weather, we have low taxes. Long term, these are the same kind of places that become impaired by climate change and damaged and uninsurable. Part of the tragedy is anyway that we can't see beyond the horizon. And so one of our contributors, Jacques Gordon, he cites Nobel Prize winning economist William Nordhaus on the mismatch between the time horizons of markets and politicians and popular opinion on one hand, and the accelerating trajectory of global warming and rising climate risk on the other. As the climate changes, this leads to impacts in different areas. What we want to do is link that so we 
change our economic structure, to slow the emissions, to reduce the damages. One of the books he famously authored, It's the Climate Casino, is published in 2013, but I think it's still relevant today, a decade later. Th this idea of the tragedy of the horizon has been taken up by, uh, by several other thought leaders, uh, like the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, uh, who is currently the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance and the vice chair at Brookfield Asset Management. The catastrophic impacts of climate change will be felt beyond the traditional horizons of most actors. In other words, once climate change becomes a defining issue for financial stability, it may already be too late. But climate change is a tragedy of the horizon. So the tragedy of the horizon um, really is talking about the, the, the differences in, in time horizon from an individual versus what the crisis is. And it creates a lot of irrational behavior. But there's a lot of irrational behavior that pops up in commercial real estate around these issues of climate change. And, and in particular, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how there's a moral hazard every time there's a disaster. Every time we have a wiping out of a community by one of these storms, we've now created incentives for people to go back to these same places and build even more expensively than they did before. I think when we use language like moral hazard, it makes this much more real and much more human. Uh, this is one of the things we spoke with Jacques about as well. Government in this country has a, a, a politically driven track record of coming in and providing federal disaster insurance relief to those who are damaged. It's, it's a wonderful thing that our government does that. It helps a lot of people uh, get back on their feet, but it also has this moral hazard issue, which is then particularly as, as you move up the uh, income uh, stream, you're actually doing something quite regressive. You're bailing out wealthy investors and wealthy people to rebuild to the same risk level at the taxpayer's expense. One of the things... Jacques has spoken about, there was a study, a recent study that Miami office market done by the MIT Center for Real Estate, and it found no rent discount for buildings that have the highest risks of coastal flooding and wind damage. But at the same time, an analysis of comp comparable sales across nearly 60 buildings in this same geography, in the same market, showed that investors did put a slightly higher cap rate and therefore higher risk on these same office towers. Of course, this brings up the question, what do I do about it? Like, what is a prudent owner of real estate in Miami supposed to do? In the past, insurance and then the federal backing of insurance uh, has meant that nothing will change. Nothing will change in terms of us starting to account for the pricing, but things are going to change. And there are some very interesting ideas from Parag Khanna about how they might change, starting in some ways from the governments themselves. When the Fed issues guidelines like this, it is really structural, right? It's not just a on again, off again, maybe politicized kind of thing. I think that, you know, it's taken very seriously by the major financial institutions. So in that sense, it's a really important signal. Now, I think there's some particularly important things here. One is that 
Um, it's not just transition risk, but physical risk, which is also really critical. So we're not just talking about decarbonization, but also climate physical risk, the the uh, the impact, of course, that flood, storm, heat, fire, drought, hurricane, and so forth can have on assets. And the third is that it's not just about risk scoring, right, which is just kind of a generic way of saying, well, you know, what are what is going to happen in location X or Y? Instead, one has to really think hard about the financial impact and develop a methodology for calculating that impact. The issue there is that insurance pricing is done on a year-by-year basis, and in five to seven to 10 years, you may no longer be able to get insurance in some of these high-risk areas at any price. And by the way, the cost of insuring in Florida doubled over the last year. So it does start to have an economic impact. And in your due diligence and in your cash flow modeling, you better be anticipating further increases in places like California for wildfire or Florida for hurricane and coastal flooding. That needs to be built into your financial model. So at that last point, when you think about the the level of impact of what we went through over the last couple of years with COVID, the lockdown, it's been a significant challenge. Um, but when you think about what we've learned from all these conversations uh, with experts, the impact of climate change is so much greater by 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 several degrees uh, in terms of its impact on the economic lives of countries around the world and certainly on real estate. One of the pieces, important pieces of information we saw is an estimate from Swiss Re that says global GDP could drop by 18 percent by 2050. That's within most of our lifetimes if climate change continues unabated. And the world's largest asset class, real estate, is likely to suffer the most in this drop. My point is that even if we are wrong and underestimate the global growth forecast, although the demographic headwinds of an aging world population are very significant, to be clear, um, you, I would say that they're underestimating the climate damage. That's the most worrying part of my observation. So with everything that Parag is discussing, everybody else has been discussing, I feel like we're heading towards a moment where we're asking, so what now? At least I, I hope we're asking that. Well, yeah. Now, this isn't supposed to be a downer. We've taken this part of the podcast to lay out the problem um, and all the daunting issues that are knocking on our doors. And I think we spend a lot of time in this industry really worrying about the challenges that we're facing. So now we're going to transition from observation and concern and prediction and start talking about action. What can we do to solve these significant problems? Unfortunately, the same people that helped us understand what the problem is have some very good ideas about what the potential solutions would be. So we're going to talk about that in the second part of this, in the next episode of the AFIRE podcast. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell an asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. I'd like to thank the sponsor of this two-part episode of the AFIRE podcast, Accountability. 
They are a go-to partner for unlocking the real value of ESG and commercial real estate. And with three decades of expertise, Accountability isn't just another ESG consultant. They're a strategic ally in an increasingly demanding market. And unlike a lot of consulting firms, CEO Sonny Miser and the team work with you to develop a practical, relevant, and customized approach. They work with some of the most challenging industries from oil and gas and mining to financial services and healthcare to help clients take ESG action that works for their business. You know, ESG doesn't have to be another compliance hurdle. It can be an opportunity to elevate property value, attract premier tenants, and satisfy investors. It's an opportunity here to not just address ESG, it's a chance to maximize returns with accountability. You can learn more at accountability.org and lead the way in sustainable real estate.